Let's pray together. Father, your word is true. Your word is truth. Your son declared himself to be the truth. You, God, are truth. You are the source of truth. This is a book that, when our eyes are blinded, is meaningless to us. And, oh God, now it is a treasure because you have opened our eyes. So this morning, as we go into your word, we know that you have built your church in such a way that preachers would preach and teachers would teach here that we might feed upon Your Word, that You would be glorified, that Your church would be built up. Father, through the power of the Holy Spirit, You root in with Your Word to expose sin in our lives. And so even now, O God, if there be sin in our lives, open our eyes that we might see. Open our eyes, God, that we might confess our sin. You, O Lord, are faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness through the finished work of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So even now, your people gather, humbled before you. God, open our ears. Be glorified this morning. Guard my lips. Guard our hearts and minds. In Jesus' name, amen. The elder to the beloved Gaius, whom I love in truth. Beloved, I pray that all may go well with you and that you may be in good health as it goes well with your soul. For I rejoiced greatly when the brothers came and testified to your truth as indeed you are walking in the truth. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. Beloved, it is a faithful thing you do in all your efforts for these brothers, strangers as they are, who testified to your love before the church. You will do well to send them on their journey in a manner worthy of God. For they have gone out for the sake of the name, accepting nothing from the Gentiles. Therefore, we ought to support people like these, that we may be fellow workers for the truth. May God be blessed in the hearing of his word. Before I plunge in to the sermon today, and you'll find this applicable within this material, I'd like you to do a weird thing and just look around at the people here. I want to honor for the people in the front because they got to look back. You guys in the back, you got it easy. But look around. I want you to make eye contact with other people in this church. It can be your wife, that's okay. Look at your wife. Look at your friends, look around. There's a truth about any church, any church that is following hard after our Lord and Savior through the glories of the word of truth. It is a truth that echoes in nearly all of the letters of the New Testament. It's a truth that is made plain and resounds in the prophets. It is exemplified in Kings and Chronicles. It is warned of in the law and it brought tears to the eyes of the Savior. This haunting truth is that people who appear to be part of the church will walk away from the truth. The word is apostasy. 
They agree for a time. They look like they're part of the church. They're in with us. We had fellowship with them. They read, they proclaim, and poof, then they're gone. In 1 Timothy 1.20, Paul speaks of Hymenaeus and Alexander who shipwrecked their faith. John writes about those who have gone out from us in his first epistle. They went out from us because they never were part of us. For if they were, if they had been part of us, they would have remained. Even Jesus provided a vivid example at the Last Supper when he declared, one of you will betray me. And an interesting thing to note is none of the disciples went, ah, it's Judas. We got that. It was Judas. We knew, we know it's Judas because da, da, da. No, what did they all say? They all said, is it I? Is it I? And they began to introspect. Is it me? One of you will betray me. The audacity. I mean, it was beyond their comprehension. They followed him for three years. Might I suggest that that is a most healthy question for us to ask? Is it I? Might this be me? I hope the next thing that comes to your lips is, I don't want that to be me. And this, my dear friends, is why the exhortation of the apostles in the epistles of the New Testament, in the letters of the New Testament, hits on this over and over again to keep on, to continue, to persevere. Because some will walk away. We've gone through 2 John, and as we begin to dip into 3 John today, we see the joy that John has when he sees saints manifesting their fellowship with the truth. They are anchored in and saturated in the truth, and that overflows in a connection and a fellowship. We'll see that brought out deep in this word this morning. Next time when I have the opportunity to continue this series, probably in a couple of months in the middle of the fall, we're going to look at a stark contrast between two individuals, one who is walking in the truth and one who is obviously not. But as we plunge into this little amazing letter today, just a couple of housekeeping tips on where are we and who are we talking about. Look at the first verse. The elder to the beloved Gaius, whom I love in truth. Who is the author? The author is the elder. We looked at this last time back in February February 7th. And oh, by the way, if you want to go back and if, if you want edification throughout the week, all of our sermons are online. All of Jeremy's sermons and all of my past sermons are online. You can go back and follow along. February 7th, we looked at this elder is John. It is believed by the writings of the church fathers and just through the evidence of John's letters that these are very lately written in the first century that none of the apostles remained. All of the other apostles had been martyred. Jerusalem had been sacked by Rome. 2 John starts the same way. The elder, but that letter is to the elect lady, to a church. 
So we see commonalities here even at the start. Even in 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, the emphasis, the emphasis on obedience, the emphasis on the love of God, the emphasis on the truth are constant within each of these. This is John, the beloved disciple. So there's little debate even among the church, early church fathers, those who outlived into the second century about who wrote this. This puts this letter about 90 AD, 60 years after the crucifixion. John was a young man at the crucifixion, perhaps even a teenager. He might be in his 70s or 80s at this time. To whom is John writing? John is writing Gaius. In 2 John, he was writing to the elect lady, who happened to be a euphemism for the church. This is to a man. But it isn't just to Gaius, it is to the beloved Gaius. This is somebody who is dear to him. Last week, Josh Longoria and his family came and worshipped with us. Many of you don't know Josh Longoria. Josh Longoria was a pastor here at this church a number of years ago. And it was great to see him. For those of us who know the Longorias, it was a blessing to our soul. To us, Josh is the beloved Josh. And his wife, the beloved Faith, they are dear to us. To John Gaius is dear. But which Gaius? Sometimes as you read through the New Testament, you come across a name and that name is referenced somewhere else. There are three Gaiuses referred to in the New Testament. One in Romans, Gaius of Corinth. One in Acts 19, a traveling companion of Paul, Gaius of Macedonia. And in Acts 20, we have Gaius of Derby. Macedonia is northern Greece. Derby was in central Turkey, modern-day Turkey. Which one is it? We don't know. What we do get from those three instances is that Gaius is a pretty common name. So we have no idea who this guy is. Does it bear on the letter? No, I don't think so. The occasion for the letter, what is the occasion for the letter? That's going to come out as we read through it together. Just like Gaius reading it for the first time. What's in the letter? I don't know. We'll get there. We've already read part of it here this morning. But we see right from the outset the emphasis and the weight of truth. The elder to the beloved Gaius, whom I love in truth. You're going to see truth pop up three, four other times here in this section that we're reading. John loved the church that he addressed In 2 John, he loved that church in truth. So too, John loves Gaius in truth. This is the apostle who recorded Jesus declaring himself to be the truth in John 14, 6. And ironically, Pontius Pilate asked him less than 24 hours later, as he's looking Christ in the face, what is truth? Well, you're looking at it. What is truth? Truth is our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. God's word is truth. Jesus Christ is the word. John 1, 1 tells us. What is truth? In truth, there is no deceit. There is no deception. There's no guile. I'm not trying to connive you. In truth, there is fellowship with Christ. Truth 
is a united kinship by the power of the Holy Spirit. This is not the world's truth. The world's truth is dependent upon you, your truth. Everybody's got their own truth. No, there is a truth, and it is important that we try and grasp and fathom and orient our lives by this truth. Truth is unchanging. It emanates from the person of God. If God is truth, God does not change, James tells us. Truth does not change. God has declared, God has the audacity to declare that the entirety of his word is truth. So if it's wrong at any point, then it's not trustworthy. It is the truth that's written on our wall that sanctifies us, that helps us to become more and more like Jesus Christ. All of our assessments and measurements of this world and life as we know it must be weighed against the truth of God's word. They must be examined under the blisteringly bright light of the holiness of the truth of God's word. And John's love for Gaius is bound in that truth. We see the importance of this truth in the second point, and that this vital fellowship in the truth is visibly seen in specific prayers. Our vital fellowship is seen in specific prayers. Verse 2, Beloved, I pray that all may go well with you, that you may be in good health as it goes well with your soul. John is praying for Gaius. This is a brother that he cares about. And if someone is truly dear to me, what greater thing can I do for them than pray? I mean, if they're laying there, they've had a heart attack, CPR would be good. If they're choking, a Heimlich maneuver would be good. If they're gushing blood, a tourniquet would be good. Okay, those are extreme situations. But in our day-to-day, prayer is vital, and we see that here as exemplified by John. It was vital for the early, early believers in the church. You go through the Acts of the Apostles in the early church, you see them play, praying constantly. Three specific uh, times came to my mind as I was studying through this. Uh, The church was gathered together in a house and they were praying for Peter because Peter was imprisoned. Peter was released from prison and went to the house to show himself to them. And there was great rejoicing after much confusion uh, that Peter was released even while they were praying. Another instance is in Acts chapter 16. While Paul and Silas themselves were in prison, they were singing and praying together. Another beautiful time, Paul is saying his final goodbyes to the church at Ephesus, and he gathers the elders together, and they're out on the countryside, and they bow down together, and they pray for one another. Is praying by yourself important? Yes, absolutely. Jesus Christ commends it to us in Matthew chapter 5. Is praying together with believers important? Yes, absolutely. 
I'm going to give you just six brief reasons why it is a beautiful thing to pray with other believers. First of all, it's soul-touching to have a saint pray for you. I would encourage you, never tell someone, I will pray for you. No, right then, right there, pray for them. Put your hand on their shoulder, put your arm around their shoulder, and pray for them. I don't care if you're in Walmart. I don't care if you're in United. The stock, the stock guys, they'll, they'll get out of your way. And pray for them. Show your love for your brother for praying for them. Because if they're asking for your prayer, they have a huge heart burden. Right now, right then. It is soul-touching to have others pray for you. It's instructive. When you hear somebody else pray, you go, Wow, I'd never thought of being so bold before the Lord before. You can learn how to pray by hearing other people pray. The disciples asked that very thing of Jesus. Jesus, Lord, how do we pray? And so he gave them the Lord's Prayer. John recorded for us Christ's final prayer before he was crucified. We learn how to pray by hearing our brothers and sisters pray. It's soul-touching. It's instructive. When we hear our brothers and sisters pray, too, it builds intimacy. It builds intimacy within the church. I see the things that affect their hearts. I see the things that make them grieve. I see the things for which they are delighted. And such knowledge, such revelations build intimacy within the church. It builds our faith. It builds our faith when we see prayers answered. It builds our faith when we see prayers unanswered. Because we trust that when we don't see it answered like we think it should be answered, we know that we have a God who hears because of the finished work of Jesus Christ, because of the Holy Spirit. And so because we know He hears, we know He's doing something. And though I can't see it, it still builds my faith. It's commanded. Number five, it's commanded. Jesus says, when you pray. Okay, there's an expectation right there. But Paul tells the church of Thessalonica to pray without ceasing. Pray continually. So we are to be people of prayer. And part of that prayer is in coming together with our brothers and sisters. Lastly, and there are, there, are, there are scads of other reasons. Please don't think this is exhaustive. It glorifies God. God designed His church as the Holy Spirit unites us together. The Holy Spirit, God the Holy Spirit is glorified. The Holy Spirit helps us in our groanings, Romans 8 tells us. Christ the head is glorified. Christ is the head of the body. Christ is the one who moves us together. It is upon Him we are dependent. When prayer is answered or unanswered, God is glorified. It is a time of praising. It is a time of thanksgiving for His people. So what is it that John prayed for Gaius? He prayed that it may go well with you. But isn't that faithless? Shouldn't we just say, thy will be done? Let God do his thing? 
Shouldn't I trust that all things work together for good? Yes. And yes to both of those. But we have to remain oriented to the fact that we are not in Eden. We are living in a fallen world, and this world is broken. We are in the trenches of the psalm in World War I. And it's bloody, and it's messy, and the enemy is right over there. And so we send word to our commander. We need food. We need support. We need reinforcements. We need ammunition. In truth, our desire should be for the good that God intends to be poured upon the soul of our brother. And this is, this is not prosperity gospel. I'm not praying for you a jag. Okay? Sorry. But I do pray that your work would succeed. That you would be a success at work. I do hope that you would be rewarded lavishly in your toil. That's not prosperity gospel either. Consider God's economy for a moment. I love going back to the corn on the cob. Approximately 800 kernels on a cob of corn. I used to think that only one ear would grow from a stock. I have seen some with two and three. So if I plant one kernel of corn in the ground, I get at least 800 more kernels. That's multiplication. That's an extraordinary payback. Wouldn't you like an 800% return on your investment? 8,000% return on your investment? That's extraordinary. What did you do? You put it in the ground. Who watered it? God watered it. Who brought the sun? God did that. What about the nutrients in the soil? God did that too. Yes, you have to weed. Yes, you actually have to put it in the ground. But all oh, that God would bless you in your faithful work. That's acceptable to pray for. I can pray that your presentation would be well received. I can pray for you as a parent that your children would walk in truth through the discipline that you are bringing to them. That they would be obedient and well-mannered. I can pray that God might give you great joy as you serve his church. I can pray that God would give you a great relationship with your friends or with your spouse or your boss, that he would heal those relationships that are broken. So John prays that it, would be, that it may go well with you. But then he focuses in a little more specifically and he says that you may be in good health. This continues the first thought with a little bit tighter focus. This is why in our prayer bulletin, sitting back in the corner, we have a section on the health of the church, the physical health of the church. Who is suffering? Stephanie is going into surgery tomorrow. Okay, that's a, that's a thing. And we have, we have saints who suffer. We have saints who are sick. That row is like almost empty. There, we've got two. Two of six here today with us. Why do we pray for health? Because we live in a fallen, broken world. 
Job sat in ashes and scraped his sores with broken pottery. It is good to pray for your brothers and sisters. We understand. We know this. We know that God is using our suffering for good. We know this. That is made plain. That doesn't mean we don't pray for the health of our brothers and sisters. God the Son himself had compassion on the sick and he healed them. He didn't just tell them, hey, I'm doing a good work in you, so buck up there, you know, go on your way and just trust me. No, he brought, he healed them. I don't have the gift of healing, but I can pray that God would bring healing to you. And if he doesn't, I can pray that he would give you endurance during your suffering and grace during your suffering that you might more and more trust him during those difficult times. There's one, qualifi- one qualifier here that John has. He prays that they may be in good health as it goes well with your soul. This is important. Our health is not the be-all, end-all. If God does bring you a healing, you will die. Lazarus, raised from the dead, got to die a second time. Jesus makes this truth very plain in the Sermon on the Mount. Better for you to go into heaven maimed than to go into hell whole. Here must be my priority. Can I say that I would rather have stage four cancer and be certain of my destiny knowing that God is doing extraordinary things that bring him glory that would not otherwise be there apart from my suffering? Can I say that? Easy to say when I'm standing here healthy. Can I say I would rather have Alzheimer's take my mind like it did my grandmother, who at the end of her days, all she could say was good news Bible, good news Bible all the time, good news Bible. She died in the simple faith of a child. Am I willing for that to happen rather than to grow old, healthy, and forsake my Savior? Consider the stupid and senseless deaths of Pete Fleming, Ed McCauley, Nate Saint, and Jim Elliott. The missionaries down in Ecuador in 1956 who were trying to bring the gospel to a people and they were butchered on the beach. You go, that's what a waste. Think of the people they could have preached to had they been pastors. Think of, think of, think of, think of. But... Who'd have thought that God would use the murder of these men to bring the murderers to the cross of Jesus Christ? Would they ever have known Christ apart from the sacrifice of those men? And when news got out of the sacrifice of those extraordinary men, that spawned a wave of missions in the United States. Those four guys and their sacrifice moved others to go, I want to do that too. 
Or would I rather live hale and hearty until I'm 110, have a five handicap on the golf course, visit every continent, climb Kilimanjaro, and die peacefully in my sleep, only to spend eternity in hell? Yes, let's pray that it may be well with my brothers. Let's pray that they may be in good health. Yes, but first, oh, that it would be well with their soul. We sang that last week here in this place. That it would be well with their soul. John can pray these things for Gaius secondarily because primarily his relationship with Christ was awesome. He was walking in the truth. So not only does sweet fellowship in the truth manifest itself in specific prayer for one another, this vital fellowship in the truth bears visible fruit that glorifies God. Verse 3. I rejoiced greatly when the brothers came and testified to your truth, as indeed you are walking in the truth. I have no greater joy to hear that my children are walking in the truth. Gaius obviously has a life that is immersed in the truth of God's word. He is intimate with his Lord Jesus Christ. He is intimate, intimate with the truth of the word, and it is seen by all the brothers in his life. It can't be hid under a bushel, no. It's going to shine. It is noteworthy. They saw him walking in the truth. Walking. It was his life. What an encouragement that is. I have no greater joy than to see this. To see that Josh and Faith are continuing faithful in the mission field for the Fellowship of Christian Athletes in Utah. Oh, that Dave and Christy are continuing faithful in their 10th year down in in Antofagasta, Chile. That a year ago, we would see Keith and Debbie Stone come here, the ones who built this church, who started this church, continuing to walk faithfully in the Lord. What a great joy. At the same time, how heartsick we are when we hear of brothers and sisters whose marriages have hit the rocks. What a grief it is to know that a brother or sister has walked away from their identity. What a heartbreak it is to know that even greater still that they have walked away from their Savior. With such devastations happening, it should come as no surprise that the saints would be overflowing with joy to hear that brothers are walking in the truth and that we should exhort one another to continue to walk in the truth. Second thing we see is that this walking in the truth has a gospel heart. Beloved, it is a faithful thing you do in all your efforts for these brothers, strangers as they are, who testified to your love before the church. You will do well to send them on their journey in a manner manner worthy of God, for they have gone out for the sake of the name, accepting nothing from the Gentiles. Gaius' love is really exposed here. It's laid open. It is a faithful work. He is doing a faithful work. He is trusting in God and doing what God has moved him to do. It is seen. It is not merely though deed. It is also heart and intent. 
It is not reluctant. It is not under compulsion. 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 7 talks about our giving. It shouldn't be reluctant. It shouldn't be under compulsion. The Lord loves a cheerful giver. This is plain in the words here about Gaius' love for his giving. This love for the saints is manifest in his hospitality. Stay at my place. Eat at my table. Here are the keys to my car. I've got to go to work anyway. Should I do this with a stranger? Should I show hospitality to a stranger? Yes. God exhorts us to be hospitable, to have hospitality to all people. Not just our believers, not just our brothers and sisters in Christ. Hebrews 13, 2 says, Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. I won't get into that. That's a whole other interesting discussion. But to whom should we be hospitable? To anyone who has need. If you've got it, share it. But how much more we should be hospitable to and provide for those who are doing gospel work. Verse 5 notes these efforts. Everybody is aware of these efforts, of all you do in your efforts for these brothers. It requires something. It it requires a trust in God that you know that he's going to do a work in them and that you're not just throwing good money after bad. You are merely providing them what he has provided you. What do you have that is yours? To what purpose and what end has God given you these things if not to bring him glory? What about me and my needs? Well, you are intended to bring him glory. My God will provide all my needs according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. Look at the birds of the field. Look at the flowers of the field, birds of the air. God takes care of them. He has created you for his glory. So Paul tells the church at Colossae, whatever I do in word or in deed, I am to do all in the name of Christ and for his glory. These ones have gone out for the name and that which I am going to do is in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. And because of what they are going to do, John exhorts Gaius to send them on their journey in a manner worthy of God. (laughs) That's a tall order. God's love is lavish. God doesn't give us just enough. God's love for us is overflowing. So why should, why should Gaius send them on their journey in a manner worthy of God? Verse 7, For they have gone out for the sake of the name, accepting nothing from the Gentiles. They do not go out for riches. They go out for Christ. Out to spread the gospel. There's all kinds of 
all kinds of ways to enter the mission field. Some people go out to church plant. Some people are doctors. They go, I'm going to go minister to people, and as I minister to people, I'm going to minister the gospel. I'm going to join a church there, plant, help plant a church, but I'm a doctor, and so I'm going to use those gifts. They go out for the sake of the name. Consider the hardships of many who go out. Some go out and they're cut off from the Western world. What am I going to do without Wi-Fi? I mean, I can't be in immediate contact with my mom and dad anymore. I have no running water. I have no treated water. You know what that means? There's no grocery store. Where are we going to get food? You're going to catch it or pick it. No plumbing, no sanitization. The language mountains are huge unless you're gifted in tongues. And people will hate you for the sake of the name. Saint, hear me. This is no insignificant service to God. Yes, it is is a grand and glorious thing to go to faraway lands. It's a grand and glorious thing to serve in Utah for the Fellowship of Christian Athletes. Having to um, solicit money from people. Are you willing to support me? But not all of us can do that. Not all of us are called to do that. Once more, this is no insignificant service to God. But when I say that, I'm not talking specifically about those who go. I'm not talking about those who go. Look at the last verse, verse 8. Therefore, we ought to support people like these that we may be fellow workers for the truth. I'm a co-worker with them. Apollo 11 put three guys into space. Two of them landed on the moon. Just two. Michael Collins, he got to sit in orbit around the moon all by himself, hoping that the guys would be able to make it back up there and hoping that he would make it back to Earth. Three guys. NASA estimates that it took 400,000 people to get those guys there. Was Michael Collins sitting in the orbiter insignificant? Absolutely not. Was the guy who worked the plumbing at Mission Control insignificant? And I don't mean the plumbing of the stuff in space. I mean the plumbing of the toilets down the hall. Was he insignificant? Absolutely not. Those who get to support such are co-workers in God's work. David Flink makes this known to me all the time, and I try to share it with you. There is not a time when I have told him that we prayed for him specifically about something that he brought up to me or that I prayed for him personally that he has not conveyed how deeply that touched him. To know that there were others fighting for him 
from 4,000 miles away. He is lavish in his gratitude for the few dollars. We, we're, not, we're like a, a half of a percent or something of, of what his support is. And he, he speaks about our gifts to him as though we are bringing him the lion's share. So thankful is he to have a church that is committed to him. But more than David Flink, your heavenly father says you are a fellow worker of the Flinks down on the mission field. Such ministries need our support. Folks who deny themselves a latte to provide a bit more for their missionary. Saints who are committed to know them by name and to know their strengths and weaknesses. Folks who are committed to write them a letter. Folks who are committed to actually, really, honestly pray for them. And not just say, I'll pray for you. And that's why I had Catherine read Philippians. Paul starts out, it was kind of you to share my trouble. You shared my trouble. Why? Because they provided him a few dollars for his work. He says, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. He wasn't saying, hey, you guys all need to come with me down into southern Greece. No, the fact that you're supporting me, oh, what a blessing that is. Because I know you can't all go. To the outside world, this may look, when folks drive by, like a nothing church. Big churches have to struggle with the pride of their ginormity. That, that's, a real, that's a truthful struggle for them. But we also have to battle the lie that this tiny church can accomplish nothing. Big and small is irrelevant in God's eyes and does not diminish His purpose or His plans. A few pondered last week, how many military members have come in here and gone out into the world, were discipled here and grew up in their faith and were able to go out on a mission field, become a part of another church stronger than they were perhaps when they came in here. How many have been discipled in this tiny place? How many have been nourished and built up because other faithful saints have touched their lives? And the missionaries, David and Christy Flink, Nate and Kristen Gearhart, in China, Segundo Rodriguez in Peru. And now we are actually considering supporting Josh and Faith in Utah as part of the Fellowship of Christian Athletes. So I would ask that you guys pray for us wisdom uh, about whether we move forward in that. John makes plain to Gaius that a healthy relationship with Jesus Christ is going to be visibly seen in the vital fellowship within the body. John opens our eyes to see two very concrete ways that happens. One, through prayer, and the other, by being devoted to those who are working in full-time ministry. Now, if you find yourself growing cold to these things, I don't, I don't mean to make you nervous about apostasy, but if, if these things have no interest for you, Whereas perhaps they did in the past, I would plead with the Savior, God, give me a heart. Give me a heart for the condition of my brothers and sisters around me. Give me a heart to sacrifice for those who have sacrificed for the name. Let me die to myself that I might live for your glory and for your pleasure. 
As we go from this place today, let us look for opportunities to live this out in our church and amongst the other believers in the world whom our lives touch. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your plan and your purpose in your church. I thank you, God, that even as we lift up our prayers even now, that you hear. I thank you for the encouragement that comes as we pray together. I thank you for your assembly of this body. God, we do thank you and praise you for those who have gone out for the name. And perhaps even now you're moving somebody here with a desire toward missions, even to a specific place. God, that you would fan that into flame. Perhaps even that we might help out, that we might be a support to that soul. Father, help us. Weak people that we are, feeble knees that we have to stand firm in this day, to exhort and encourage one another while it is still called today, that you would be glorified. We look forward to your coming and we beg that you would come quickly. In the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior, we pray. Amen.